Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Hello, and welcome to Killer Women Podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air Global Network with more than 4 million listeners. I am your host, suspense author Danielle Girard, and my guest today is Kate Quinn. Kate was a travel journalist for The Guardian and Times before becoming a novelist. Her novels have sold more than 500,000 copies worldwide. She also publishes under the name C.S. Quinn, and she's here to talk about her latest book, The Clinic. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. So fun. Okay, I gobbled this book up. Tell our listeners about The, the Clinic. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So The Clinic is a murder mystery set in rehab, uh, luxury rehab, sort of peopled with celebrities, each with their own addiction issues. Um, it's based around a character whose sister dies in that rehab, reportedly of suicide, but the sister Meg can't believe that's the case and decides to enter rehab herself. But Meg has her own addiction issues, so when she goes into the clinic, she has um, a double-fold problem to deal with. She has to solve her sister's murder, and she has to also overcome her own addiction at the same time. Yes, which is Meg is not super excited about doing. She sort of wants to cheat the system. Yeah, Meg, I mean, when Meg goes into the clinic, she, she's not really 100% sold on the idea that she even has so much of a problem, even though it's pretty obvious to the people in her life around her that she does. Yes, absolutely. So in the acknowledgments, I want to talk about this right away, because you discuss um, what, which I think is so wonderful, and we talked about this ahead of time, um, how great, you know, how think it's so admirable and a gift to all your readers that you talk about this and you said this is the first book I have ever written sober which I think is really astounding so you know tell us about like you know well first of all tell us about what it was like to write a book sober you know because of course we all believe that there's some magic that happens that, that you need some sort of extra, you know, I've had the same thing about like taking antidepressants. Like if I take them, does that mean my magic goes away and I won't be, I won't be able to write anything. So talk to us about what that was like to, to do that, to realize that you had to do this thing for your life and then sort of the fear about writing. Yeah. So as a fellow author, you, you'll understand, right? Of course, yeah. writing often feels like this completely magic process and you don't know where it's coming from and you don't know how you're getting these ideas sometimes and I think also most writers we we go to really deep emotional places in our books and if we're crime and thriller writers we often go to really dark emotional places in our books and the way that you deal with that as a writer is is not always easy at all and in my case one of the ways that I dealt with that or attempted to deal with that was to use alcohol to kind of, I suppose, numb my reactions to it, perhaps, deal, deal with my reactions to it, and also to kind of, in my head, to allow me to go to those dark places, which um, otherwise I couldn't get to. It felt kind of like an armour. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was using this substance that, that was killing me, right? And I had a problem with drinking too much alcohol. It was interfering and destroying with uh, my life in so many ways uh, I felt like I couldn't stop and at the same time I, I also felt 
like I needed it to write the books. That was the sort of thing I, one of the things I hung on to, if you like. Uh, one of the reasons why it took me such a long time to to quit. Well, and I think, I mean, I, as a, you know, I can absolutely say that there are times, you know, writing when I'm like, I pour myself a glass of wine just to be like, okay, you know, you can, it kind of softens all, like you said, the armor, it softens all these, these rules we set up about things we're not going to get to places we're not going to go. And it kind of lets you access them in a way that feels safer, right? Because you're like a little <laughs> numb. And yet, of course, like that's, it's really, it's, it's, it's crutch, right? It's, it's not really what you need as a writer to get to those places, but it feels, it feels helpful in the moment, you know? So I think that's, that's incredibly brave. So this, the, of course, we're going to, you know, I, we talked about this a little ahead of time too. This was not your rehab experience, but cause it is quite wild, but there's some really interesting aspects about addiction and the ways that, you know, people behave, addicts behave. And I thought that was really interesting to sort of see how, you know, well they lie, you know, how sort of even to themselves, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. and it makes this incredible cast of characters, um, the sort of rehab romance stuff. I mean, um, I don't want to spoil any of the book. So, but there's so many interesting aspects. So when you were writing this book, sort of, you know, uh, how did the sort of, how did this, you know, you obviously knew you were writing a thriller, so you're like, somebody has to die. Um, and so what, how did it sort of come to you? What, um, you know, what was the process of building this story for you? So um, I personally went to rehab prior to writing this thriller to tackle yeah. my own alcoholism. Wasn't on my mind at that point to yeah. write a thriller set in rehab. In fact, I had this other book that I was kicking around that involved um, some emotional depth, let's say, that I felt like I wasn't getting to the heart of and was mm -hmm. was really struggling with. Um, so during rehab, I felt I had this, well, when I came out of rehab, actually, I should say, because it took me a good few months, um, I suddenly kind of felt I had this plot to kind of weld onto this book that wasn't working, and suddenly it all came together. And the process of rehab also kind of made me realize that the emotions and the kind of stuck trauma that I wasn't dealing with in the first place, I could kind of process in a different way for that book. Um, but the, the the process of getting the characters together, after after being in rehab, rehab is a crazy place. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of crazy things that happen in rehab. And um, as, as we talked about before time, I, I couldn't, um, really talk about those things outside rehab because it would be unfair to the privacy of the people I was in rehab with yeah so being able to fictionalize those things um just was like you know someone had started the motor and it was just running because there was so much material and there were so many different interesting characters right so I think I started with a few um and there were also people in, in the rehab with me who were kind of known figures as well. So there was that aspect too, to kind of draw upon. Um, and I was really, it was a question of cutting down, to be honest, I would have liked to have more characters, yeah. but I had, so I think I've got, I think there's five, I think in for the, yeah. for the, for the cast of, of suspects. There's Tom, um, Jade, uh, Sienna, uh, Plus you have the people who work at rehab, right? You've got Kara yeah, and work at Max. Rehab. So yeah, so we have um, we have a kind of aging supermodel. We have a young right. up and coming actress. 
we have a kind of established older sort of statesman like actor we have a kind of rock and roll um sex god lead singer of a band um and then we have and then we have Meg and I'm wondering if we and we have Sienna of Jay. course yeah we have, well, um, um, yeah Jay does that actually then we and then we have um a singer in a girl band that's right yeah, yeah who is exactly plucked from there yeah so a kind of fun cast to kind of see and then obviously having been in rehab all of these things there are things that are really I, I was told in rehab um are very common to all rehabs and one of them is is romance because yes once you kind of unpack and start to get vulnerable with your own feelings, you're suddenly in this sort of actually very happy place often. You're in this almost loved up kind of place where you're like, you know, everything seems, suddenly seems possible and there's no longer this poison in your system. Mm -hmm. And once you've got over that horrible physical aspect, um, you also feel very uh, well disposed towards the other people with you. You really have great, like feelings of strong love towards the other people in your in your group. So, unsurprisingly, that very often spills over into into romance. And because that's not allowed in rehab, um, those romances have to be secret. <laughs> well, and it's—I mean, it's—it makes total sense too, because you're in a safe place, right? All the sort of uh -huh. demons of your outside life, all the people who you've disappointed or hurt or whatever, aren't there. So yeah. it's just—it's just really—it's um, just—it's like summer camp for adults, right? A little bit, you know. It's so much like summer camp. That is actually a surprisingly good description, um, and I quite a couple of people in rehab use that description um, too, because there is there is a really um tricky aspect you have to do the work and there are physical aspects but then you're also kind of at some point hanging with your buddies you know you're talking this it's quite relaxed because you don't have you're not at work you know all that kind of stuff so yeah and and you've you know you, you feel fond of each other but and, yeah but there are also arguments as well <laughs> of course yes just like summer camp exactly well just like um, summer camp not everyone gets along Right, of course. And, you know, I love one of the things, of course, I killer women, I love to talk about sort of strong, you know, female characters. So, you know, Meg is this, you know, she's talk about her job, because I think her job is fascinating. Um, and, you know, there's she's real resilience from a, you know, sort of difficult childhood, right, raised mm -hmm. by this mother. And um, so talk a little bit about her, because I think she's a phenomenal character um, to build this whole story around. Thank you. So, so I loved writing Meg. Meg mm -hmm. is uh, has basically made a career out of um, being able to spot poker players who are cheating the system. So she works for a casino in a professional capacity, and her job is to be kind of like the honey trap, go into poker games, play poker well or badly, depending on what the situation needs. Um, and she's an exceptionally good poker player because of her ability to read other people's reactions which is a mm -hmm. skill she's had to learn in childhood because of her experiences um and then catch people who are um, trying to defraud the system trying to defraud the casino or trying to um learn shark uh, that kind of thing so she has a legitimate job but there's kind of a uh, a slightly shady edge because obviously she's sort of undercover um but whilst doing this job she herself um is addicted to prescription painkillers yeah. Yeah. Uh, in order to start to, to uh, help with a, an old injury but really for her own psychological trauma of what she's been through in her childhood yeah and that I you know we're not going to talk about the childhood thing but there's this I'm going to say that there's this you know sort of eerie man with a hat a fedora 
and there's this, you know, and uh, who has like playing card eyes and there's this woman. So there's a lot of what you know, the stuff she remembers from her, from her childhood is, is really eerie and fabulous. And the way that that, and you know, the, the solution to that at the end is so satisfying. So I just want to say like, that was so fun to, to think, God, what is this thing? And then to have, you know, the way you, well, that's all we're saying about that. So you have to read the book to, to, <laughs> to understand. So tell us, tell us about the process of, you know, writing sober, like what, you know, are there moments or were there moments as you started, as you did it for the first time? Cause now of course you've done it again, you have another mm-hmm. book and you're, you understand of course that it can be done and, and you're, you know, yeah. But what was it like in the beginning? Were there moments where you thought, was that, did it make it harder to, to stay sober, the sort of writing process, because you had depended on it? Or what was that like? So I think I was lucky because I had this, I felt like I had this great plot to run with and all this material. Mm-hmm. So that got me started. But I was definitely playing for self-doubt. And, and really up until the point, I think someone asked me this the other day, like up until the point that the book came out and readers liked it. I was still uncertain that I would ever really be able to make a career sober because I really felt like this emotional aspect. Um, but then interestingly, in terms of the, the character of Meg, some things that happened to me in rehab, I was able to sort of draw upon. So in terms of memory and things, I, I found, because I had drunk alcohol for my entire life. So I had never really been an well, never actually been an adult sober. Like since the age of 13, I had I had been regularly drinking to the point that I was always on some kind of roller coaster of, of alcohol or drugs or both. Uh, um, yeah. And when I started to um, come off the, yeah, detox, come off the alcohol, I, I was getting, like Meg in the book, kind of shreds of memories. It was really strange. Like, like I guess these things that had been suppressed for so many years and it was like layers that the, the, you started to process some things and then other things came up and those things sort of felt unbelievable. Like, where did that come from? Is that even my memory? Is that even me thinking that? It felt really bizarre. And the only thing that sort of gave those memories a, a sort of shred of truth was the fact that they, um, I remember my counsellor saying, but you've got so much better. You know, that that's where they're, they're not just coming from nowhere because you've, right. you've kind of taken off this load of memories here. So, so a lot of that, I think, in the book was inspired, I, I suppose, rather than relying on the alcohol to access those darker memories or that trauma from my childhood, I was using, I suppose, the actual memories, I guess. And I and I guess I was able to process them in a, in a better way. I, I think that is yeah. probably what's happening. Well, that's what happens to Meg, right? I mean, all of a sudden this, me- and the memories, the way she sees those memories changes as you know, as she's more sober, I mean, she, you know, it's, you know, she, she doesn't believe that they're real for, you know, a time. And you can understand that, of course, you know, you, but we bury things, we all bury things, you know, and so when they start to come up, and it is kind of amazing, it seems like that's a real science that as you become, as you were more and more sober, the, the bits of your past that you really didn't remember, start to sort of surface again. So that you can process them, right? It's, I mean, the brain is amazing. So. Yeah, yeah. So your body almost decides, okay, like you know, you're ready for this now. You know, this this layer has been lifted off, and now you've got, you know, now it's it's the bit below that to come. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is 
but it's a very unsettling <laughs> thing oh, to happen and something course. that I really wanted to tap into in the book because that experience of having these bizarre memories that you, you not only are not sure are real but you kind of don't want to be real either you know yes. there's the two things go hand in hand you'd really rather they weren't you know you'd mm -hmm. really rather like oh that's just something that popped into my head so those two things fighting it out in your brain for for supremacy um you know do I want to get yeah. better or do I want to just kind of pretend all this stuff didn't happen and um, it, if you're an active you know you're you obviously have an active imagination too right as writers we're always thinking about sort of fantastical scenarios and so there's probably mm -hmm. some part of you that was like oh that has to be just something I've imagined right and then to find out it's not <laughs> yeah well yes and also I think I mean you must have this too I think most writers would say like when we write we feel like we're kind of a channel for, for something else like yeah. without being spiritual about it but it feels very much like that and I wouldn't yeah. you almost like well look I don't want to take credit for this stuff that I'm writing on the page because a lot of it comes from kind of up there and I don't know I'm just kind of you know like channeling right. it and putting it out right. there right it's not me like it's not my individual self it's kind of some something out there that I'm just um putting down so uh, yeah I think there's there's aspects of that as well right that we almost feel like we're opening ourselves up to and maybe that's another aspect of using alcohol or, or any other substances that we have to be as writers really open to kind of you know have these experiences and then that's also quite hard as a human being right <laughs> quite hard and I mean, it's probably no, it's probably no real surprise that so many artists, right, including writers, do use alcohol and drugs, right? Because like you said, you're conduit sort of, right? You're just, you, you feel like you're just attaching to something that is bigger. And, and it's hard, I think, in, in the day to day life of, you know, you're raising children, you're, you know, maybe working a day job, you're, there's all this stuff that gets in the way of just being that sort of pure conduit for something that we feel like it's coming from somewhere else. It gets so disrupted that you feel like, well, maybe it, this is the way I can plug in more easily. And that makes total sense to me. I mean, it's like, I mean, especially you got young children when, you know, I remember with what young children is like, where can you find, it's not just the physical space and the time, but you need to have this sort of clear mind to do this job. Mm -hmm. right? You have to be able to sort of open yourself up and, and, have nothing in your brain that interrupts between you know whatever you're trying to imagine and uh and the page and that's really hard yeah right because if you've dropped off your kids to school and they haven't wanted to go in that day that's you know going to interfere with yeah it, it's tricky I mean I like nowadays I get up at five in the morning and that's like my time because that's before anyone can get to me and then I, <laughs> and then I have two hours um with you know no one in my space and I can kind of try and find that clean time but it's it's a really hard thing to do to get that time. It's so hard. It is such a hard thing. Well, there's, oh, I want to talk about Max too, because I'm curious about the kinds of people that end up working. Max is the, you know, the therapist inside the, um, yeah. inside the rehab center. And, you know, an interesting thing. And even Kara, who's sort of the administrator of the, of the clinic, it is interesting the kinds of people who end up working in rehab. So there's this, um, quote I really like, um, it, um, is that why I got addicted? Because I couldn't handle having feelings. Only you can answer that, he says. Addiction issues go hand in hand with sociopathy. Remember, antisocial personality disorder is a coping mechanism, a way of dealing with unbearable events in childhood, many relentless traumas that forced you to adapt. 
You learned that love was unreliable, that adults were cruel and unpredictable, that healthy emotions only led to pain and suffering. As a child, you had no way of knowing how high the cost of losing your empathy was. So that's like, you know, that's talking about how this patient basically pushes the empathy aside because it feels like a mm -hmm. vulnerability that, that they can't afford, which I thought was so interesting. Right. And I think people go in, to, uh, and I should obviously say, I'm, I don't position myself as an, an expert. This is simply my opinion, um, yeah. that people seem to go in two directions. So the one direction would be in terms of being neglected, let's say, as a child or having had some, some difficult experiences, would be you dial your empathy up to kind of mean that you can meet the needs because you need it because you need because no one's giving you anything that you need so in right. order to get like adult caregivers to give you what you need you need to be extra specially empathetically aware so that you can detect any subtle changes and hopefully get what you need to survive so that would be like mechanism one and then mechanism two would kind of be the opposite so in uh, an experience of unbearable emotional pain a child um, might and it's not, I, I'm not going to use the word choose because it's not a choice, but but they mm. might sort of almost cauterize their emotions um, mm. as a coping mechanism because it's just, they, they just cannot deal with this unbearable emotional pain. So that would be kind of route two. So yeah. I suppose with that particular scene and that particular patient, um, I'm really interested in the idea of um, particularly antisocial personality disorders in that we are often taught to look at them as monstrous and to look at them as villains. And you know, generally those characters do represent the villains in, in fiction. Um, and I just was interested in the, the way that actually those people are possibly the people who most need our sympathy and our support because they've yes. been down by everybody in the first place. Yeah. Um, and that's I mean, why you, they're- you, Yeah, and I think there's a few, I mean, there are multiple characters in the store, in the, you know, in rehab who, in your story who do who handle it differently. And I think that's a beautiful yeah. thing too, because of course there's no one way to handle early early childhood trauma. There's no one way to sort of protect our emotions or get what we need. And like, mm -hmm. and what I love about the, you know, the, what the Max, who's the therapist says is that you don't, you know, you don't have a choice, right? You don't understand that later on in life, you're gonna need this thing, which you are cutting off, right? Your empathy. But because you're doing it, you have to. It's a survival technique. Yeah, here. absolutely. And and nor do you understand that if you've dialed up your empathy to the max, that's going to be incredibly overwhelming for you as an adult. And you might need to, you know, take steps yeah. to let you recover and, and so forth. Yeah. And, it, and it's so individual. And, and one of the things they say in, in rehab, I mean, there's a number of phrases that people kind of say a lot in rehab. But one of them is that some one person's trauma is another person's bad day. You know, you yeah. just don't know which right. person is going to be affected by by what thing but generally it's um you know being alone with something and unable to process something that you that you personally at the time couldn't handle yeah yeah exactly so um and i there's a, a quote i read did you, i don't know if you caught it yesterday i read on um, my monday morning quote i read the quote about how um you have to go i'm going to tell everyone to go listen to it um i do monday morning quotes and i read um this, uh, the quote about how police officers and politicians. Yeah, no, are, I, I called that one. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. I are oftentimes, um, you know, well, I guess there's, you know, they're sociopaths, right? Um, I thought it was really yeah. interesting. People in power. 
Sure, and I think like for obvious reasons, as a society, we have a lot of negative connotations with that with that word. And yeah. certainly, you know, anyone watching who's had a, an encounter or a, a negative experience with a sociopath will feel very negatively towards anybody on that personality spectrum. Um, but the, I, I think I was interested in how, as a as a tribe we have different personalities across the spectrum that allows us to survive as a tribe. And yep. if you think about it, you know, we need someone who's going to be prepared to cut someone open on a medical gurney because I couldn't do that. You know, I no. couldn't take a knife and put it into no. someone's body and drag it along, despite my, what you might, what I write about every day. Right, um, right. And, and and similarly, I couldn't, I don't think I could be a police officer and see the worst of human nature every day and not have it take me down because right. it would just be too difficult for me to, to process that. So right. we need people who are able to step aside, from, to be logical about their emotions and, and do these very important roles for our society right. to function. It's not, it's not all bad. No, I think that's a really valid point. And I, I, I want to, yeah, I want to agree with that because I do think in the book, sociopathy doesn't necessarily mean that you're a psycho killer. It's not the same thing, right? It's just an ability to sort of shut down empathy in a way that makes you able to do something that most of us couldn't do, just as you said. So you're right. It is a, it does have a very negative connotation, but it's very necessary. You know, I would say mm -hmm. politicians is a little more questionable, but, um, but no, <laughs> they have to, they have to make a decision for a greater good, which sometimes means sacrificing some people for the, well, that, you know, again, yeah, I mean, I would not want to be the person pushing the button um, on the, yeah. on the on decisions, you know, to, to the big decisions. It That would be too overwhelming for me to make because I totally. would be empathizing with, you know, the people I was sending out to fight or. Yeah, yeah, no, it would not be a good job for me either. And I think that's why we get to be writers, right? We can imagine <laughs> it both ways. So tell us, um, I want to hear about the books you write as C.S. Quinn, because I'm not familiar with those. So tell us a little bit about that. So I started writing um, thrillers as uh, historical thrillers as, as C.S. Quinn. And the reason for that was quite tactical, actually, because I, I had very low self-esteem about my writing in general, uh, but I had got some experience. I'd, I'd um, uh, done a degree in English, but I focused on history and, and got on to do some more qualifications in that. So I, I, I felt that if I wrote historical books, it would be a better niche for me to sort of break into publishing which certainly at the time so this would have been uh I think at least 15 years ago in the UK or actually 20 years ago um publishing in the UK feels very inaccessible to I mean I would come from I would say a lower working lower middle class upper working class sort of family and publishing in the UK is very much peopled by people with excellent manners many of whom went to boarding schools and I just felt it was a language I didn't speak and I could never break in so I needed this edge so um I wrote some thrillers or I wrote a thriller called The Thief Taker uh about um a 17th century um thief taker or kind of a policeman at the time I I, I guess it would have been like a freelance find your thief kind I of I love that yeah uh, I love yeah it was a fun it was a really fun one to write actually because obviously you at, at the time there was no recognized police force um and he um it's kind of a dan brown da vinci code sort of vibe he's chasing a lost key through 17th century london um so whilst kind of solving it was so much fun to write and and the nice thing about writing historical thrillers is that you've always got you never really run low of ideas because 
every scene every, you has about a hundred things that you need to check you need to be like okay well let me just check did they actually use teaspoons you know mm-hmm. where would the right right so then you get these great ideas um but obviously very very much slows the process down but then yeah. when you come to a writing contemporary it's kind of like training at altitude because you can like go and like actually see videos yeah. Yeah. People, yeah you know like or talk to people you know talk to actual alive people about their experiences um so so both have their merits actually as a, mm-hmm. as a, as a thing to do I love it so how many C.S. Quinn books are there so there are six C.S. Quinn books. There are four in the Thief Taker series. And then I switched to a series, which was so much fun, called The Bastille Spy, which was about a um, like a female, female Scarlet Pimpernel. Although I don't, do you have the Scarlet Pimpernel in, in America? I didn't know if you did. It was, it's famous. Essentially, in, in real um, history, during the French Revolution, there was um, a swashbuckling, uh, purportedly male figure, who rescued aristocrats from the, oh. the guillotine. Yeah, and there was a really wildly um, popular book series about a hundred years ago about this man's adventures and mm-hmm. how he managed to sort of pull people from the brick. So I did a, a female version so of fun. that. Yeah, so it was so much fun because it was like a spy and you know, she was like undercover mm-hmm. in France, like uh, rescuing people. I, I love that. Plus I think there's something kind of fun. I always feel like if you go back far enough in history, the 1700s not a lot of people know all the details of that so you get a chance to sort of explore you know exploit some funny some fun new details and maybe a little more room I mean you can't use the cell phone people would know that but you know a little more room to kind of like fudge what the actual details are like now when you write a book if you get something wrong everybody in the you know everybody who watches CSI knows you got it wrong right it's a little different yeah it's true, but you know what? Actually, I, I almost found the reverse is the case because you would not believe how many people out there know exactly what 17th century London was like. That <laughs> is, that um, is, yeah. They're going to tell you. If you got it wrong, they're going to tell yeah. you. Um, well, fair. So in a weird totally way, fair. I think, because I think I think a lot of people who read those books read them for the pleasure of sort of knowing, you know, like always sharing this, like, but I mean, luckily for me, I'm a massive history nerd. So I, I really enjoy kind of going yeah. through those details and like so you, holding the original yeah you're not getting you're not getting it wrong it sounds like you're like i'm, I'm, not I'm sure it. i mean like of you know how books go of the million yeah. facts and it probably is about that isn't it in in, in yeah. a book i will yeah. unfortunately because i'm a human being probably sadly make an error or maybe well, we, i mean we're human i would like to say we all you know we <laughs> yeah you ho- you have to rely a little bit on your readers and your uh editors and such but yes i, I can <laughs> see that as well the, the 17 century London history buffs are all over those C.S. Quinn books I can imagine so they, they sure are, yeah okay so yeah. tell us what is next for Kate Quinn or C.S. Quinn what are you working on right now or what did you just finish well, I know you finished a book I have just finished one you know I'm uh, yeah I think I am going to do another C.S. Quinn one because I'm, I just feel like I've got um, a bit more time now so but the next one is a Kate Quinn book um, and it is the sort of working title is the bridesmaid, but that could that could change. Um, but it is about a, um, a Paris Hilton type character about mm-hmm. to get married, and she has a stalker who is killing her bridesmaids. Um, and the stalker is possibly someone very close to her. We we don't know, so uh, you kind of follow her through that journey. Um, and then I'm also um, doing a CS Quinn because for that book, as perverse as that might sound. 
I went and stayed with a, quite a few nuns, <laughs> which will make sense if you read the book. Okay. Um, the music makes sense. Um, and I had I had a great time actually. It was incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the other things I did was I thought I'll I I've got bubbling away the idea for a CS Quinn book to do with. Um, not murder in a convent because the nuns would never never forgive me in fact I think they yeah. made that quite clear they literally said like please don't murder anyone in a convent yes like, exactly um, <laughs> Fair. so um, outside of a convent uh th- there will uh, oh, and I think it will be set and that will be in a more C.S. Quinn style so more of a treasure hunty thriller kind of like and historical or and historical well I okay. think I might do um more of a modern day linked with historical scenes i think just to be a bit more accessible totally oh that sounds wonderful you are a busy lady yeah well as as are you right i mean we always have um things going on and that's right it is when do we start yes okay tell um tell our listeners where to find you i know you're i think you're what are you kate quinn writer tell us on instagram quite I should know this, shouldn't I? I am, I believe I am Kate Quinn author uh, okay. um, on Instagram. I would just confirm this. Yeah, <laughs> Kate Quinn author. And then the same, um, because I think I put I started to put Kate C S Quinn and but no one could find me. It was a I I'm it's a dreadful business. I've finally got my head around social media now. I know um, it's very confusing. Because it's very confusing and um to my shame when black widows came out i i wasn't even really on instagram and when i or I, you know i had an account and when i looked back i had all this amazing like reviews and things and i hadn't and i had to go back and thank everybody like you but i felt so bad that I, you know oh. I had, so anyway, too, i'm on yeah. instagram now good still kate can't quinn. figure out twitter but i am on the same oh. handle on twitter kate quinn i can't do twitter i just can't i can't i don't know i, I, I out People love it. I'm, yeah, that's how I feel too. And TikTok, how about TikTok? I'm ancient. There's no way. I, there's no TikToks for me. I am, so. Yeah, there's no TikTok. I think my publishers are, are on it with TikTok. I am, you know, I might spend a day trying to get my head around TikTok. There you go. I, I have like a young niece who might be able to, you know, laugh at yeah. me. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're, you're <laughs> way younger. You can do it. I'm, 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 I'm officially done with that. Well, um, I loved the clinic. It was so fun to chat with you. Thank you so much for being so candid and um, about your experiences. And I, I think this is, as I said earlier, this is the gift. I feel like, you know, we women give to one another to say, this is the hard stuff we go through and come out on the other side, you know, better and stronger. Um, so thank you so much. This was, this is not a sobriety handbook, by the way, this is a totally fun page turner. Um, I of course love to dig into all the, you know, stuff behind that. I make my little tabs always on the pages that I love the most but um the clinic is super fun Kate thank you so much for joining us today it was so fun to talk to you thank you so much for having me everyone this is killer women with Kate Quinn and we will see you next time bye